much. Oh, you guys, you guys are just the best. I love you guys. I miss you so much. Thank you for the gift of, I had a, a, a little sabbatical month in June. It was so great. Thank you for the gift of that. But you guys, I really missed you. When I came back, I was like, ah, oh, this is my home, my community. It felt so good to be reconnected with you. It felt actually a little hard to be away from you guys, and so it's so good. So anyway, thanks for that warm welcome. And uh, as Daniel said, we are excited. Mike Terigiato is with us here at the back. Woo, Mike, yay! And so we will have our extended worship and prayer service immediately following. After the message, there'll be a time of, of, of worship and prayer response, and then I will close this service. So if you do need to go, no worries. There'll be a clear indicator, and then we'll continue, as Daniel said, right in uh, to that service. And we really hope you can stick around. All right, so as Daniel also mentioned, I think we have been in a sermon series on the Book of Romans. If you've been with us for any uh, length of time, you know that our lead pastor, Chris, has been taking us through this very dense and meaty book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and it's been really just great to dive in. This month, in the month of July, uh, Pastor Chris is on his annual prayer and study month. Every year we give him one month to go and be with the Lord, renew his soul, fill up and, um, and come back and be able to, to really share all that he received during that month with us, and also, as well to have some time with his family. So we're excited that he gets that. During this month, we have lined up some fantastic guest speakers. I'm really excited for the coming weeks. And um, in addition, if you did not get a chance to hear Doug Payer's sermon from last week, it was stellar. You definitely want to like, not miss out on that and go ahead and, and check out that sermon as well, right? And then today, of course, I'm excited and, and so glad to just be able to be here with you and share from the Word. Uh, what Pastor Chris has organized for us this month is that he has selected certain key verses from the book of Romans for us to dive into. So we're not going to continue the verse by verse. I think we left off kind of in chapter 3, but we are going to be looking at key verses throughout the book of Romans and diving deeper into really digesting this book. So the verse that was assigned for this week is Romans 5, verse 8. And so I want to read it to you, and I'm going to start from verse 6 to give you just a little context, all right? So let's dive in. It says this. It says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I grew up in a church, you know, back at, I came to faith as a child, and I grew up in a church that really believed in scripture memorization, except in that church, it was old school, so it was King James, these and those. I came to church for the first time in maybe like fourth grade, trying to wrap my head around all this, encountered, you know, this encouragement for scripture memorization very early. And of course, in our church, we tend to use the more modern translations, but the principle still holds that scripture memorization is very beneficial. And so I want to encourage you guys that this verse we're looking at today, Romans 5, 8, it's just one sentence. It is a verse that is worth memorizing. It's worth hanging on to. Right? It's, it's, it's a powerhouse verse. Okay? And, and I say this um, because 
the Bible tells us elsewhere in Ephesians that we are to equip ourselves and prepare ourselves to fend off any lies that might come at us from the world, from the enemy, by being prepared with our sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, which is scripture, right? And being able to, to wield that to kind of to fend off these lies. And I'm telling you, this is a verse you want in your arsenal, Right? It's a sword you want to have at the ready. It surprises me, actually, how often I come back to it as a touchstone, as a reminder of what's true, what the Lord says is true. And today, we get to really dive into its meaning and application. So, okay, so to start that off, what I want to do is start us with a story. So uh, this story is a story of Jackie Pullinger. She's a missionary who served for many decades in Hong Kong. And uh, she started in the 1960s. And she served in some of the most seedy, lawless areas of Hong Kong. So it was mostly like gangs, drug dealers, prostitution. And um, during her time there, uh, the, her, uh, there's a biography that's written of her life. I was reading it. And there's a story that she shares of meeting a woman and the woman kind of comes to faith and then kind of decides not to be part of the community of faith anymore and turns away, returns to her life on the streets and really rejects all of that. So Jackie loses some touch with her. But later on, she learns that this woman has gotten into trouble, big trouble, with a loan shark. This loan shark is a dangerous guy. He essentially wants to enslave her for a few years as a way for her to pay off her debt. So Jackie hears of this and she's a little at a loss because, you know, this woman hasn't had contact with her. She's not asking for help. She's not saying she wants to turn from how she's been living that got her into this situation. And on top of that, Jackie's a missionary and she's poor. I mean, like dirt poor. She's living hand to mouth. She did not go with a sending organization or the way some missionaries, you know, they have supporters. No, she just went in faith and was living like uh, just as best she could. And the people she's, you know, working with on the streets, they're not paying her. So she really had almost nothing. And so she kind of felt like, well, I don't know if there's anything I can do. But then later on through a series of events, she's kind of praying. And there's a, uh, a series of things that caused her to realize and to feel convicted that she does have one item, only one item that's very personally significant and precious to her. That's of value. And she feels this conviction to sell this item to pay off this woman's debt. And she struggles a bit, but she makes a decision to do it. So here she is, she sells it, she gets the money, she goes to this loan shark. And the loan shark looks at her like she is totally crazy. And he says, don't think this woman is going to be grateful or change her life in any way because you're doing this. And Jackie says in response, I know, I know, but Jesus never said that he would only die for me if I changed. Right? Jesus never said that he would only die for me if I changed. Wow, like can you imagine being in Jackie? She's being asked to give up everything you have. I mean, some of us, we don't have much, but whatever it is, our emergency fund, what's in our bank account, a bit of retirement savings, whatever it is, all of it, everything we have to a stranger who doesn't even want our help, who may or may not decide to do anything good or change anything that got them into the situation because of this huge sacrifice. Like, it's a gamble. It's a roll the dice. I mean, I think we'd be really hard-pressed to make the decision that Jackie made. 
And here we're just talking about money. And we're not talking about laying down our lives or laying down our child's life. I mean, as a mother, that's horrifying. I cannot even imagine that. And yet that's what the Bible tells us that God has done for us. He sent his son to die for us while we were still sinners, meaning we had no interest, we weren't grateful, we weren't looking for this. There's no sense that we were necessarily going to turn to him. Yet, just for the chance that maybe, maybe we might respond, it was worth his son dying. I mean, it's hard for us to take in the magnitude of that gift, of that love. And I think because this verse, it's, it's simple, it's just a sentence, it's comforting, and it's something that if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, you'd factually agree with. Yes, Jesus died for me before I came to know him as Lord and Savior. That's a fact we agree with. But this verse is stating so much more than just a fact, right? It's, it's speaking to the value that we all have in our mere existence, in our being, not just our doing. And for many of us, that doesn't compute because who are we if not what we do? I mean, of course, we live in New York. Often you get asked, what do you do? You say, oh, I'm a plumber, I'm a teacher, I'm a mom, whatever it might be. But beyond that, and even as Christians who have learned about where we should find our sense of identity, I think we often think of ourselves as the sum of our actions, especially our repeated actions that lead to habits that form our character. Right? So when you think about your sense of identity, who you are, you think about what you often do, good or ill, and you think about, okay, and that's how you come to the place of saying, who am I? I am a person of integrity. I'm generous. I, I value faith. I'm kind. I'm patient. Maybe I'm not so patient. <laughs> like whatever it is, right? Our good and bad choices that are repeated, that are habitual, that form our character, we tend to define ourselves and see ourselves, forge our sense of identity through that lens, right? But what if our most fundamental identity, our first identity, is not based in what we do or even in our character, important though that is, character so important, but what if there's something that's even more fundamental than that, that defines who we are, our value and worth, that cannot be erased or changed based on what we do or don't do? What would that be? What is that all about? And I want to just have a brief side note here to just name that for, again, any of us who consider ourselves Christian, if you've been Christian for any length of time, you've probably heard, you know, some common lingo we use. So we say things like, our identity is found in Christ, I'm a child of God. Those things are true, and they're powerful. If you've accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then yes, your identity is in Christ, and you are adopted into his family, you're his child. But this verse is talking about us before we've accepted Christ. Right? Before we've even made that decision, God sees such value in us that it's worth his son dying before even that choice, that identity in Christ, right? So how is that possible? What's that all about? I think that to understand this, it helps to keep in mind the big picture, uh, the big story of God, what scholars refer to as the meta-narrative of Scripture. And for that, we look at the whole of Scripture and we go back all the way to the first book of the Bible, the first chapter of that of that book, that book is Genesis, chapter 1, 
where it talks about creation and it describes how God created everything, light and dark, the oceans, the animals, the trees and plants, and he calls it all good. And then he creates humanity. It says he created men and women in his image and he calls us very good, very good. We're very good. In God's eyes, we're very good. We're his creation and we're very good, not because we always do what's good. Adam and Eve clearly didn't do what's good. He was just shortly subsequently to this creation account, and we'll talk about that more in just a moment, but because we're made by him and we're made in his image, we reflect a bit of, uh, we echo our creator. People see uh, a little of the reflection of, of the divine in us, of the character and the design of our creator, his fingerprints all over us. We're his masterpiece. And the way I think of it, um, if this analogy helps you at all, is that God sees us kind of the way we see gold. Okay, so if we had a bar of gold, whether it was caked in mud and dirt and grimy and you could barely see it, or whether it was clean and polished and gleaming, it would still have its same intrinsic value for what it is, right? It's gold. And I think that's how, how God sees us. We talk about this a bit at baby dedication. A baby does nothing to earn its keep or to prove its worth. What does it do? It comes in the world, wah, railing, expecting everyone to wait on it, hands and foot, 24-7, zero concern for anyone around it. Why does it have worth? You know, like, we see, though, right, that every little child, we feel it inherently has dignity, worth, value. Why? Because they're God's masterpiece, right? We see a, a reflection of and the design of their creator when we look at their little faces. And this is who we are. And again, I think that we, many of us, we agree here in our minds, we agree with these statements. We agree that we're loved. We agree that Jesus died for us before we came to faith in him. We believe, and we would say we believe, that God loves us unconditionally. But we live as if love is earned. We live as if love can be lost. How we live, what our hearts actually believe and what our heads believe can be so different. This little 18 inches, so difficult to bridge that gap. Have you ever done something wrong and been afraid to own up to it? Yeah? yeah of course you have. I have. Yeah, yeah, it's a universal experience. What makes it so hard when we're wrong to admit that we've done something wrong? I mean, of course, you know, we fear punishment. We, no one likes, you know, facing maybe the consequences of the mistakes we've made. But at a deeper level, we fear rejection. We fear judgment. We believe that people will relate with us based on what they see of our good and our bad, and maybe will distance themselves from us if they know more about our flaws and mistakes. Quite some time ago, before I got married, I married, we're going on almost 15 years now, and so long before that, yes, yay! Uh, <laughs> um, great gift, my husband, Con. Um, anyway, okay, I digress. So back to the story. We, before I got married, I was dating this guy, and uh, he was, I know. <laughs> You're like, how can you be of this detail that's so extraneous? Edit, Denise, edit a little. Okay, yes, okay, I'll try.
try. I'll try. Okay, you're right. So, okay, you'll like the story though. Okay, so back to the story. So, no, no, really, you will. You will. You'll see. Okay, so I was dating this guy. Okay, I was dating this guy, and he, uh, he and I, you know, we dated a little while. Okay, we were on our way to meet some of his friends. I was meeting some of them for the first time. Okay, and hopefully not TMI. I was feeling a bit gassy. <laughs> So I was like, oh no, this is not going to go well. And so I asked him, as we're on the way to meet this guy, these, his friends, I asked this guy I'm dating if he would take the fall for me. <laughs> and like, if I farted, if he would like say it was his fart. <laughs> like, he's like, absolutely not. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, okay, you know, I just. <laughs> and you guys, this was just, you know, why did I ask? It was because I was embarrassed, I was ashamed. And that was just over a fart. You guys, like, imagine if it was, like, my deepest struggles. And, you know, all, for all of us, the things we, we, we regretted, the things that still have a hold on us, shame can come so quickly and easily. And not only that, but, you know, it's easy to feel like our choices, and especially our mistakes, define us. I don't know about you, but for me, you know, it's more often the mistakes, the times I've hurt people, that tend to come to mind again and replay than the good things that I've done. I think I've heard, you know, uh, interviews with professional athletes, and they kind of say the same. And on top of that, the language we use as well can be reinforcing of kind of identifying with our mistakes. So, for example, we don't usually say, this is a person who's chosen to lie. Uh, we say, this person's a liar. Right? We don't say usually, this is a person who made a decision to steal. We say, this person's a thief. Right? And so it's in the language almost as if our mistakes become inherent, to who we are, to our identity. And with that can so easily come a transition from healthy remorse and repentance for wrongdoing to this unhealthy sense of worthlessness or being unworthy of love. There is a academic researcher who studies shame. She's actually pretty well known. Her name is Brene Brown. You may have heard of her. She gave a really viral TED Talk some years back. And she defines shame this way. She defines it as the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection. And unfortunately, we've all experienced this. We've all failed and felt shame. And what do we do when we feel that shame? Do we whip out Romans 5, 8 and say, but God demonstrated his own love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I am loved for who I am, where I'm at. Is that what we do? We whip out our sword? No, I mean, like, I, that's what I wish we all did. That's what I should do, what we all should do. But what do we typically do? We do what humanity has always done. We hide. Right, we hide. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, just a couple chapters after the one we looked at, we see Adam and Eve make a decision to do evil by eating from a tree that God has told them will only bring them death. And uh, after they eat, what's the first thing that the Bible says happened? It says they realized they were naked, they covered themselves with fig leaves, and they hid. They hid from God. And to a large extent, that's what we're all still doing to this day. Right? We try to hide, minimize our weaknesses and blemishes. Think of online dating. We're so convinced that we'll be loved for our good attributes. Try to put a 
best foot forward. Meanwhile, this other foot that's stuck in some sin and shame, we're like, oh no, don't look at that. You know, it seems so simple and so obvious to us that this is how things work. And so that leads us to try to show the best parts of ourselves to others. We can feel sometimes like we're wearing a mask. And ultimately, this can lead to us wondering if we're actually really loved. If people knew us fully, would they still love us the way they seem to now? And, and what a painful thing to feel. Shame is so alienating. And unfortunately, honestly, we are all sinners. We don't love each other with the same unconditional, perfect love that God loves us with. And so there is a reality where sometimes people sin against us and we don't respond in a loving way. And sometimes we make mistakes and we lose relationship. That can happen. And, and, God never leaves us. God never leaves us. This verse, right, shows us he died for us while we were still sinners. That tells us absolutely nothing can separate us. Nothing we can do can create distance between us and God, can cause him not to love us. Because if he loves us, if he loved us before we thought anything of him, while well, we were making evil choices, if, if he loved us when it wasn't clear we turned to him at all, we didn't want his help, then he just loves us. He just loves us. I want to invite you to imagine with me. Do a little thought exercise. Okay, I'm going to warn you in advance. Thought exercise feels a little awful, but, but I think you'll be glad you did it. Okay, so hang with me, bear with me here. And if you would, enter in in your imagination. Picture yourself on a stage. The spotlight is on you. And there's a crowd. There you are. And you're sharing everything you have ever done wrong in all its gory detail, the things that you did wrong that you still regret, maybe feel some burden to this day, the things that you struggle with now that you aren't sure how you're going to get free. And you're sharing however long it takes, you're sharing, and you pause Maybe you finally come to the conclusion of what you could think of. And, and then the response comes, okay, we love you. Right? We love you. We love you. It makes me a little choked up, like thinking about it. If you really enter into that, it's so powerful. And that is how God loves us. That's his heart towards us. With God, we are set free to return to our natural state, by which I mean our unhidden state, our bare, naked selves. We can be completely honest about who we are, not just the cleaned up parts, but the really dark parts, the parts that if we're willing to admit it, we all have. I have, you have, we all have, we're all sinners. We're not just sinners in the past, we're sinners in the present. We struggle with things where we know our attitudes, our actions, our words, they're not right. And now God's showing us we have a new way of living opened up to us. Because when we're faced with our sin, as we all are, we all make mistakes at some time or another, we're faced with our sin. When we do something wrong, we usually tend to respond in a couple common ways. The first one is one we've already touched on a bit, which is that we hide. 
And we not only hide from others, but even from ourselves. We minimize, right? we minimize our sin. So have you ever been in an argument? Maybe you're with your significant other, a family member, you know, and you're going at it, and, and the person, the other person points out something that you clearly did wrong. And then your reaction is rage. It's like, how dare you, boy? I tried so hard, and I'm so much better than before. I'm better than other people. Here's 10 reasons why you should be more understanding of this. You know, like, am I the only person that, no? Yes, okay, not alone, right? We, sometimes we say it, sometimes we think it in our hearts, right? It's so hard for us, and we minimize how often we sin. We minimize the depth and extent of it. We minimize how much it impacts other people and hurts them. We minimize how much it hurts us. When it comes to looking at other people, we see very clearly, you know, very clear. But when it comes to looking at our own weaknesses and struggles and sin, we put on a nice, thick pair of hot pink glasses and look at everything in the really rosy tent, maybe a blindfold. Like, I don't see it, you know, right? When we look at those difficult parts of our lives. So that's one way we respond. And then another way we respond, for some of us, this is our default. For others of us, it's when we no longer can minimize. For whatever reason, our sin is staring us in the face. We can't minimize it anymore. And then we're often tempted to feel crushed. Just despair, a sense of self-loathing. I'm the worst. I'm such a bad person. How could I do this? How am I ever going to dig myself out of this huge mess and hole I created? It's just all too much. And we just feel crushed. And then we can kind of ping pong between the two. We minimize, we can't anymore, and we feel crushed. And then when we feel crushed, we're like, can't tolerate this. So just to cope, we kind of start to minimize again. And it's just a bad cycle. And I want to propose to you that both of these responses, while they are common and perhaps very humanly understandable, neither of them are, are fruitful, are responses that will likely lead to good fruit in our lives, right, As when we're faced with our sin. But in Romans 5 God has revealed to us that we have another option. He's demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we can stand secure in his love. There's a home base that we have that enables us out of that to have the strength and the courage to examine ourselves fully and not have to minimize, and yet not be crushed, right? and yet not be crushed. Romans 5, 8 essentially tells us that we have everything backwards in how we tend to live. Again, it might not be what we say in our minds we believe, but how we actually live, for many of us, I think goes something like this. Our anxiety and our shame motivates us to try to do better and be better people so that we'll be loved. And the Bible is telling us, no, no, it doesn't start with your anxiety and shame so trying to earn love. You start loved. You are loved. Live loved. Live, that's your foundation. Live loved. And out of that comes the security, the courage, the strength, the resilience you need to be able to get really honest about who you are and not feel shame, not feel crushed but feel hope, Because how can we grow, right? If we can't fail, if we can't be fully honest about our failures, if we're too afraid to examine ourselves to even name where we need to grow, how will we begin? 
if we're crushed as soon as we get honest, how will that result in anything good? Usually it just depletes us of all our strength and we kind of want someone to just tell us that it's okay so that we can feel loved again. And none of that leads to, to growth or to fruitfulness. Think about um, a child, what a child needs in order to be really honest about a, a big mistake they made. Or a little one. Did you eat that chocolate? Did you drink at that party? Right? And meanwhile, their mouth is ringed with chocolate. You can smell the alcohol in their breath. Kind of, you know, like a good parent knows what's up. But they ask. And of course, again, there's always that part of us that wants to avoid consequences. And, and, um, but deeper than that, a child needs to know that it is not going to cost them everything internally to admit they made a major mistake, right? And so they need to know that it's not going to cost them their entire sense of self-worth and self-esteem, and they need to know that it's not going to cost them their relationship and the love of their parent to be able to own up to what they've done. And that's how we are as God's children he, and how he is. He's a great parent elsewhere in the Bible. It talks about how God does prune and discipline us, meaning he allows us to experience certain consequences for our growth. But importantly, you know, even though that's uncomfortable, the Bible even says so, we don't like it, but, but importantly, in that, there's never any distance between us and God. He's never left us. He's never further away. He's not just mad at us. He loves us. He loves us while that's all going on. The same as if we had never made a mistake, he loves us. That's how he loves us. He's the best parent to us. Before we close this morning, I want to share one more story because um, it's a story I heard recently. It's really impactful, and I think it's very relevant to our scripture that we're studying this morning. Uh, I was recently listening to a podcast. It's called We Are Vineyard. We are part of the Vineyard denomination, and the denomination has this podcast, We Are Vineyard, where the uh, national director uh, here in the U.S., his name is Jay Pathak, Jay interviews leaders from across the movement. So I encourage you to check it out. It's a great way to also hear from different leaders and get to know different voices in our movement. So the format is semi-biographical. So you get to hear in the podcast kind of the stories, the life, um, inner life journey with God and ministry experiences of different leaders. And recently, Jay was interviewing John and Debbie Wright. They are the national directors of the Vineyard in the United Kingdom. And during this interview, uh, Debbie shared a story that was so powerful. And I think she shared it intentionally, probably because she knows many of us need to hear this story. Okay, so here's the story. She and her husband, John, uh, she says, uh, they were pastoring at their local church. This was a long while ago, but they had already been pastoring for some time at that point. And uh, one Sunday morning, uh, ordinary Sunday, a lady from her congregation calls her up and says, hey, can we get a ride to church? And Debbie says, sure. She goes by, she picks them up. It's, uh, she picks up both the lady and the lady's young daughter. So here they are on their way to church, and they get in a terrible car accident. And the way Debbie describes it is, it was 100% her fault. She made a terrible mistake. She should have seen, should have done differently. She didn't. As a result, they were in this terrible accident. And this lady's daughter died. Oh, she died. Oh, it's crushing. I just couldn't even imagine. I mean, imagine this community grieving. Debbie felt so crushed and awful for months and months. She describes how it just, like, she felt so crushed. It was so hard to do anything. 
She felt so withdrawn from people. She felt so ashamed. And everywhere she went, it made, the way she describes it makes me think of um, the famous classic novel, The Scarlet Letter, where there's a woman who's like marked and everyone sees her through the lens of her worst mistake. And that's how Debbie describes it. It's like everywhere she went, she would go to the schoolyard to pick up her own kids. She was the mom who had killed this little girl. She would go to church and here she's supposed to be doing ministry and she was the woman who had killed this little girl. It was her mistake. And for months and months and months, she's dealing with this and all the weight of it and all the burden of it. And then the way she describes it in the podcast, I'm sure it's, you know, has to be condensed, you know, in that format. But she describes how she was still trying to engage with God in prayer. A lot, you know, time passes. And at some point in prayer, God um, invites her, or you might even say challenges her, to hand over to him all her burden, that he's able to bear it he died and rose again, and to hand over to her that he's even able to bear, like, this woman's grief, this poor mother's grief. He's big enough. He's able. And so Debbie tries to follow through on that, and the way she describes it is she experienced utter transformation. Her joy returned. She was able to engage with people again. She'd been really withdrawn because you can imagine how she felt unworthy and, and, and so, you know, shame is so alienating. But she was able to engage with people again. They even planted a church not that long after the church thrived. I mean, now she's the national director of the UK. I mean, really, you know, like life, life happened still for her. God had a good plan. These mistakes were not bigger than his ability to overcome and redeem and write a good story. And even in her ability to engage with others, she said that, she was, I guess she'd probably been like maybe extroverted before, but now she felt like she could talk to everyone and everyone. Why? Because even if like, you know, let's say there was a mom who like all the other moms were gossiping about because she committed uh, adultery, had an affair, and her marriage is on the rise, and people, she felt like she could talk to everyone because why? She had good news to share. She felt like she had good news. And we have good news to share. And this is good news to us. And Romans 5.8 tells us right, tells us that there is nothing, nothing in this world, nothing we can do, no sin and brokenness that can be greater than the love and the power of God at work. He's bigger than the brokenness of this world. He's bigger than even our own sin and, and shame. So I, w- I want to um, invite the worship team up as we wrap up um, and as we respond before we respond in prayer, I just want to recap for us the journey we've been on with this verse. It's just one sentence, guys, one sentence. You understand why people say you could be in Romans for five years. It's like so much, right, in one verse that it speaks profoundly to us of who we are. I want to remind you to consider memorizing this verse. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I hope you can see as we've been talking this morning, how powerful it is in your arsenal that whenever you experience lies of rejection or shame that come at you from this world or even from within, when you make a mistake, which we all will, to have this verse at the ready to root and remind you of who you are. You are God's good creation. That is just true. It is not based on how we behave. It is just the truth of who we are. God has assigned you so much worth and value. You're so important to him. He he died without even knowing, you know, without even us indicating that we were going to turn to him, right? And so remembering again that analogy, like 
it's like God sees us like gold, whether we're caked in dirt, whether we're clean, we have value. And out of that to know that we are loved and, and that love creates the security, the home base we need to get essentially naked again before God, honest about who we are, every part of us, without having to minimize and without being crushed, but being able to be honest about every part of us, even the darkest parts, and have hope, have hope that enables and empowers us to be able to move towards change, not because we need to earn love, but because we are loved. And the one who has loved us has told us, this is the way towards life, walk in it. And we say, yes, we want that. And we're able and empowered because we are loved. This is the gospel news, the good news. So as we meditate on this scripture and all it means, I want to invite us now to enter into a time of response and prayer. And so if you feel comfortable, I want to invite you to, to close your eyes and center yourself in the Lord. And I want to invite you to take um, a moment, maybe just half a minute or less, to consider um, what God's bringing to mind. Is there a struggle or a sin that you know you're dealing with right now? What does he bring to mind? just receive. I take this time to receive God's love for you. I pray that you would not just know it in your mind, but you would experience and know it in your being. You would Feel the truth of it. You are loved. And then I want to invite you to consider um, just from this space of, of being loved, what's one thing that you could do to move towards growth? What's one thing you can do to grow? be in that area of struggle or sin that came up. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. God, we thank you that you died for us while we were still sinners. How amazing and incredible. How beyond words and 
we, it's hard for us to even comprehend how great is your love for us. Lord, I pray this morning that every person here would know, not just in our minds, but in our very beings, to the, to the core of who we are, that we're loved. I pray for the experience of that love, that embrace. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us this way. And Lord, we pray that your love would transform us and enable us to experience a confidence and a security that's just otherworldly. That rooted in you, Lord, we could be completely honest, naked and unashamed, and not, not have to minimize, not... not um, not lose hope, but, but continue, Lord, to be able to grow in hope. And I pray that, that the growth would come not because we're wanting to earn love, but because we know we are loved. And we really believe that the one who loves us is offering us life by giving us this direction. Lord Jesus, wherever you've spoken to us this morning personally, I pray that that deposit would remain in our hearts and that we would continue to walk and live loved and that we would walk out anything you've encouraged us to step out in or do. Lord, we love you. We love you. We praise you, Lord. We praise you, God. Come and have your way in us. Thank you that you love us and you're so amazing, God. We worship you. What can we do in response but worship you and say, you are God. You are good. We give you our praise. We give you our worship. Have your way. We thank you, Lord. Root us in your love. Keep us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I want to encourage you, um, that if you'd like prayer for anything at all, that you can slip out of your seats and go to the back. Our prayer team would love to pray for you, for the words that were shared earlier, anything else that's on your heart. And uh, if you would, would you stand with us, if you could, uh, and to respond to the Lord um, in worship. <laughs>